The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, church. I want to thank uh, Pastor Aaron, Pastor Paul, and the, uh, the church for the kind invitation to be here with you today. Before we get started, I got kind of a special announcement. I came this morning uh, here with my wife, Kathy, and today is her... 39th birthday. She's been 39 for five years now. I don't know, uh, some other women may have that talent, but uh, yeah, well, happy birthday, Kathy. And uh, as, as I said when, they, when I was announced, Mighty Oaks Foundation is the foundation that I represent, that I get to, the privilege of running full time. And uh, if you guys don't know, this community for several years now uh, of Medford has been a big part of helping Mighty Oaks, we wouldn't be able to do the work that we do with our veterans around the nation, around the world, without communities like this who get behind us as a grateful nation and support us. And I just really want to take a, a moment to thank uh, Terry Behinds for all he does uh, to make that happen. We've uh, been able to raise several thousand dollars uh, through the years here and, uh, and put multiple uh, veterans through our program, life-saving program. I mean, we literally see people's lives saved uh, despite the 22 veterans that take their life every day, uh, we see people's marriages, marriages restored. Despite the 80% uh, divorce rate we see in the military community. And we see people's eternities change forever when they come into a relationship with Christ. And so thank you, Terry, and the veterans community uh, of Medford. I really appreciate you guys. I want to start off with t- t- today sharing a story of my time in Afghanistan. I know there's lots of veterans here who had time, uh, both training and abroad. Uh, but my, my story uh, is, is a little bit unique in the fact that I served in special operations for most of my time in the military. I was part of a JSOC task force, uh, which is a joint special operations command task force. We have multiple different types of special operations guys brought together for a kind of common cause of going out and killing and catching bad guys. And uh, my job was a little bit unique in the fact that I was uh, called an AFO, Advanced Force Operator, which the best way I know how to describe it is like being an undercover cop. You go, you wear plain clothes, you, dr- you get to hang, live with the locals, I get to grow a big beard and uh, eat all the local nasty food, which is kind of cool at first, but it gets old really quick. And uh, in this particular day, I want to tell you about, it was me and one other teammate. He was a Navy SEAL. The two of us were in plain clothes. We didn't have much for weapons. We each had like a pistol tucked away in our waistband. And we were driving a Toyota Prada, which is like a Toyota 4Runner. And we were driving in, a, in, in the capital city of, of Afghanistan, the city is Kabul. And we were driving on a road called Jalalabad Road, heading into the eastern side of the city. And at this point, pretty much the Taliban was pushed out of Kabul. But every now and then they would come in and do something crazy. And, and I looked in my rearview mirror and I seen a pickup truck, a Hilux pickup truck. that looked like it was loaded with Taliban, like stereotypical Taliban tribal clothing on, big beards. They all had AK-47 assault rifles. We even seen an RPG, a rocket propelled grenade launcher. And we like knew these guys were up to no good. And, and to give you an idea of how many were piled in this truck, we had a joke we'd see in Afghanistan. How many Taliban can you fit in a pickup truck? So the, the answer is one more, right? They pile in the truck, they're hanging out the sides. There's always, always one stuck on the roof, right? And, they, and they, we're like, man, I hope these guys aren't following us. So I did a technique I learned in my training called deviating your route. And so I'm on Jalalabad Road to make a right, and I start making the block, and they continue to follow us. When I get back to my original route and turn right again, turn to my original route, they turned and followed me, which let me know they were, in fact, following me. But it also lets them know that I know that they're following me, which started a pretty aggressive pursuit. They start chasing us really aggressively, trying to run us off the road. 
I made a decision to go into the city of Kabul to try to lose them in the business of the traffic. I, I didn't live on a base anywhere. I lived in Kabul, so I knew the city really well, and I thought that I could lose them. Now, I don't know what the traffic's like in Medford. I just got here last night, but I, I would assume it has nothing on third world traffic, right? Uh, I mean, no stoplights, no street signs, busier than any U.S. city I've ever been in. And so it very, became very difficult to lose these guys. Like I'm banging in the cars, trying to make my way through. And I got caught in this major intersection called Masood Circle. As I got to Masood Circle, I remember the traffic just started to congest and stop. And all of a sudden, I didn't really have anywhere to go. Somehow their truck got it, got it through the traffic, got about 20 yards in front of us and cut off my only exit that I had off that intersection. And I remember a few guys jumped out the back. But probably my most vivid memory is the, the passenger stepped out. And there was reason it was just such so eerie is because he was so cool and calm he like, stepped out he closed the door behind him he had ak-47 in one hand and his other hand he held up making eye contact with me for stop my vehicle it's a, a really bad situation outmanned outgunned in in this uh training experience this is called being stuck on the x right the x is an ambush site it's a kill zone a couple of things you learn in, in training about the x is number one you have to be able to recognize that you're on the x right? you got to know you're in a bad situation and rule number two, it's pretty simple, right? You got to get off the X. You can't stay there or something bad's going to happen. I'm so thankful for military training. You know, every possible scenario you can run into, you do it redundantly over and over in peacetime. That when you go to deploy, you don't have to think about it in a moment of chaos. You do exactly what you're trained to do. And every year we go to Bill Scott Raceway in West Virginia and we crash cars and do counter pursuit training. And, uh, and we do exactly that scenario. We train for a roadblock situation. You execute a ramming technique. And so I did exactly what I was trained to do. I hit the guys, I aimed my vehicle towards theirs. And I remember when I smashed into that truck, probably my favorite memory of Afghanistan, I've seen little Taliban guys fly out the back of that truck. A, a few of them jumped right before I hit it. And it spun out the way. And, I, and I, when I hit the truck, there was like this perfect pathway, kind of like this outway right here, perfect pathway to get off that intersection. But as I'm driving off of it, there was one more obstacle. It was like this 100-year-old policeman. He had his uniform on. If you've ever been to a third world country, like these traffic cops, that's their life. That's their whole job is to own this intersection. And that was this guy. Like he's, this was his intersection. He's seen what was going on. He's blowing his whistle at me. Beep, beep. He's trying to stop me. And, uh, and I was going to run him over because I was getting out of there. And so when I was going towards him, he did what most Afghans do and how they survived thousands of years of war. He jumped on the winning team. He jumped on my side, he started blowing his whistle, stopping cars, directing traffic, and actually got us off the intersection and probably saved our life that day. Um, I came here today to tell you that you don't have to go to Iraq or Afghanistan to find yourself on X. You know, many times in life we're going to find ourselves on the X, and we have to make a decision of what we're going to do. If we're going to stay there and die, either literally or metaphorically, or we're going to press forward and get off the X. The question in life isn't if we're going to find ourselves on the X. It's when we do, what are we going to do about it? In my own experience of, of my life and my job of working with many military warriors who, who are dealing with combat trauma, essentially stuck on the X, I've really learned it comes down to one thing. It's a choice. A choice that we have to make if we're going to stay on the X's in our life or we're going to get off the X and move into the lives that we are created to live. Uh, God didn't just create us uh, just because. He created us for a purpose. And God has a plan and purpose for each and every one of our lives. Whether we have a relationship with him or not, he has a plan and purpose for each of our lives. He created us for a purpose. In Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And when we find ourselves in the X in our life, and we, and we will, uh, if we press forward, trusting that promise that God has for us, 
we're going to find victory in, in the battles of life. I wish I could say that I, I always move forward when I found myself on the X, that I knew the promises of God or even uh, trusted the promises of God, but that's just not the case. In 2007, I came home from my eighth and last deployment from Afghanistan. I was diagnosed with PTSD. I was dealing with debilitating panic attacks and anxiety and uh, just massive depression. And uh, I didn't follow those two simple rules. One, I didn't identify that I was on the X. I didn't want to recognize my situation because of pride or shame. And because of that, I couldn't make that second choice to get off that X. I chose to stay there for a period of almost three years. And I emphasize, I, I chose, I made a decision to stay there and not get well for a period of almost three years. And it, and it almost cost me everything. My struggles in my life, I don't believe began in Afghanistan. I believe they started way before. Um, I come from a Marine, Marine Corps family. My father was a Marine who's an infantry Marine in uh, Vietnam. And I know there's probably some Vietnam veterans in here. And I always have to say, you know, growing up with a Vietnam father, just thank you for uh, your service to Vietnam and, and welcome home. Because I know you guys didn't get the home welcome home that we got well, when, we, when I came home. Uh, my father came home and struggled. Um, not only is my father a Marine, by the way, my two sons, my oldest son, Hunter, is a Marine. He served in Afghanistan. And my youngest son, Hayden, just graduated Marine Corps boot camp a few months ago and is on his, in training to become uh, his job in the Marine Corps. So big Marine Corps family. But when my father came home, again, he didn't get that support. He didn't get that uh, service. He never, he never got well. Uh, he was a very angry man, lots of alcohol in his life, uh, lots of women. Uh, he just... He was a very violent man, and if anybody's ever grown up in a, with a father like that, uh, it's a very dysfunctional home, a lot of physical abuse in our home. And I don't mean spankings with belts. I have kids, so I'm down with spankings with belts. But I'm, I mean uh, fist-to-face physical abuse, and I'm not okay with that. Uh, and uh, I, I grew up that way. I mean, if you ever, anybody's ever grown up in a home like that, you know siblings get really close. And so my brother and I, he was a year older than me, we took the brunt of that physical abuse. We, we, uh, we bonded through that, and we became very close and uh, in that, we were about I was about 13 years old and he was about 14 years old. And we decided, hey, let's join the military when we get old enough and we can escape this lifestyle, have a fresh start. We grew up in southern Louisiana, so we were always in the woods playing military. We were in the bayous and in the, in the swamps. I loved to swim growing up. And, and, uh, and I remember we were watching an, uh, this Navy SEAL video and I seen this Navy SEAL coming out of the water. He had like his face painted green. He had a boonie cover on and seaweed coming off his scuba gear and an M16. I'm like, I want to do that. Like, that's what I want to do. But I don't want to join the Navy. And sorry for any Navy people in there. <laughs> I, was, I had this desire to join the Marine Corps. I think the reason I wanted to be a Marine is because as, as broken of a person as my father was, the one thing that made my dad so proud, the one thing that made him like stand up proud and, and smile and laugh was the fact that he was a United States Marine. And I thought if it can make him happy, then I want, to, I want part of that. So I learned that the Marine Corps had something in Navy SEALs called being a, uh, a reconnaissance Marine, a force recon Marine. And so that's what me and brother decided we were going to do. We started learning about it. We started at third, early age, we started running and swimming and eating better, uh, things you don't do in Louisiana and uh, growing up in the South. We started really being disciplined and training ourselves for that. About a year into it, tragedy hit our family and my, my brother, he was shot and killed. And, uh, and I was devastated. He was the closest person to me in my life at that time. I went into really deep isolation. What I had, my, my, uh, my stepmother, which is my, my brother's biological mother, could not handle that. She pretty much had a mental, mental meltdown. My father didn't want to deal with it, so he left to go work overseas. And, uh, and I was left with my sister and, uh, to really just take care of ourselves. 
and I went into a very deep isolation, depression. Uh, the one thing I kept focused on, however, was that goal that me and my brother set. And so I just kept physically training. When I was 17 years old, uh, I probably was not going to graduate high school because of trying to work and go to high school at the same time. So I went to a Marine Corps recruiter. I'll never forget his name, Staff Sergeant Brown. And, uh, and I won't forget his name because he, I think, forever changed my life and probably saved my life. He, he, uh, he heard my case and made a plea for me with the Marine Corps to get me in the Marine Corps without a high school diploma. And, uh, and I was 17 years old. And I made a promise to the Marine Corps that I would get my GED my first year in. And after Marine Corps boot camp and infantry school, I made it to 29 Palms, California. And I got my GED. And all these years later, I have an MBA. I can't spell it, but I got one. Right? <laughs> and uh, I joke, but it, the, the truth is, I'll always be thankful. People join the military for different reasons. But for me, I'll always be thankful for the military, for the Marine Corps, for giving me that second chance at life, that really clean slate to start over on my own. And, uh, and I just really embraced that at a young age of 17 years old. And I had that goal set to become a recon Marine, which is very difficult, especially at a young age, the 80 per, 80% attrition rate in most special forces to make it in. And, uh, and I made it. And, uh, and I remember just being so determined to make, make it into that job at that age. And, and it was everything I wanted. There's so many great jobs in the military, and I've seen all the veterans that stood up, and I'm sure it represents so many incredible jobs in the military. But for me, there was no better job that fit my personality, my drive, my desire to do what I wanted to achieve in the military. The problem was, it was 1993 when I went in, and there was no wars going on. And, uh, you know, you, and, and some, of the, some of the ladies always ask me, why would you want to go to war? The best way I know how to describe it is, like, imagine you get, this, like, you get a beautiful dress, you get your makeup done, you get your hair did, you're all made up and want to go, but you're all beautiful and you have no place to go. That's just like being in the military during peacetime. You, like, get all trained up and you don't have any place to go. And... Uh, None of us really, I think, after we go to war, actually want to go to war. But I remember uh, the years going by, and finally, my wife and I sitting in front of the television and watching those planes fly into the World Trade, Center, World Trade Center buildings. And I was assigned to Third Force Recon Company at the time. I was a sergeant, a team leader there. And uh, I knew watching those planes crash into those buildings, I knew my life would never be the same. Uh, I knew we're, we're, going, we're going to war. Uh, this is not going to be something that just gonna, is going to go away. I remember everyone rushed to our unit, and when everyone got to the third force, which is our, our unit, when everyone got there, no one was like, oh my gosh, we're going to war. Everyone was like, hey, what's up, sir? Like, when are we, when we going to do this? The military was extremely motivated. Everyone wanted to deploy, and everyone kind of had to wait their turn to deploy. I got a chance to dry, try out for the JSOC task force. I got on. I got everything I asked for. Over the following years, I go eight times to Afghanistan. And when I got there, the very first time, I would have said that I was completely ready to do my job. I mean, one, I wasn't a kid anymore. I had been in special operations almost 10 years. So I had tons of training. I was, very, uh, I, was, I was with the best tier one special operations unit I could possibly be with. The military has these, what's called pillars of resiliency to be ready to, uh, to do your job. Mind, body, spirit, social. I remember uh, thinking, you know, well, I'm, I'm mentally ready to do this job. Physically, best shape of my life. Uh, socially, I'm with the best team I could be with. And spiritually, well, I got the word Christian stamped on my dog tag, so I'm good to go. But um, the truth is, I didn't really have a relationship with God or have a strong spiritual foundation. In fact, I, I believe my wife and I went to church on Sundays, but if I could be honest with you, looking back now, I, uh, I probably went to church as a man dragging my family there to have control of my family. Like, my wife is going to be 
that virtuous woman and she's going to be faithful and loyal and all those things that men want out of a wife. And my kids are going to go to Sunday school and they can be disciplined and have character and all the things we want our kids to get in Sunday school uh, so we don't have to beat them so much, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, but, but for me, I wasn't going to do anything beyond a Sunday morning because I didn't really feel like I connected with the men at my church. I had this problem that if, if we're kind of honest about, I think a lot of men in our culture, particularly young men, struggle with. I felt like I had to choose between being a warrior, being this masculine guy that I aspired to be, and being a Christian. I felt like there was a conflict between masculinity and Christianity, and I felt like I had to choose between the two. And I, I'm like, I'm in Afghanistan, and I don't have time for this faith thing. I have to be a warrior right now. And I'll tell you, men, there's no bigger lie from the enemy than that, that we have to choose between our masculinity and our Christianity. Because I'll tell you, there's no one I've seen more powerful in the battlefields of Afghanistan or the battlefields of life than men of God. If not for men of God, who is going to stand up for the things that need to be stood up for in this world? And there's some things right now in this world that needs to be stood up for. And uh, I wish there would have been a man that would have stepped in my life and told me that when I was younger. Because I believe that I had to make the decision, and I chose, I deliberately chose that I could do God later when I get older. But right now, I need to be this warrior. And, and I, I believe that decision left a giant hole inside of my heart that over the, the following years, I'd fill with hate and rage and anger and bitterness. Um, my experience in Afghanistan was not being on a base and going out every now and then. It was living with the Afghan community. And so immediately, I went from this sense of patriotism, they retaliate for 9-11, to really having a, a burdened heart for the Afghan people. I got to hear firsthand who the enemy was, who the Taliban was, and what the Taliban had done to these, these, these people, these, uh, these women, these children, the sex molestation of these children, all the grotesque things that had happened to them and the oppression that these people were under. And so I began to hate the Taliban. And I began to, um, to really buy into this culture that my unit had, this Viking war culture of this, this intensity and hatred towards the enemy and probably the people that were most aggressive towards the Taliban were the Afghans that I worked with because they, they were patriots of their country fighting for their, to have their freedoms of their country back. And it was just a very intense environment. And I can tell you that intensity, that anger, that, that drivenness, it feels like it works really well in combat. Um, I can't, after eight deployments, I couldn't tell you one operation I believe we lost. Uh, and we were just very aggressive in a, in a way we operated. But while it works, it's not necessary. Uh, we, as Americans, are the good guys. And, uh, and there's a line between being aggressive and still being the good guys. And I believe there's a, a big cost at having hatred in your heart in a place like war. Uh, and, uh, and many of myself and many people I know uh, have and, and are still paying that cost. And not, not only is it not necessary, but it's not sustainable. Um, it's always going to eventually take you over. And for me, I remember just early on leaving Afghanistan and, and 24 hours later, I'd be home with my family. My wife would pick me up from the airport and I couldn't just flip that switch and not be that intense guy anymore. I couldn't come home and be like a husband and father and Mr. Rogers, the friendly neighbor. Like I was still this angry, intense guy. And I, I remember uh, my, like, and it's always a shame for me to say, but I think it's very necessary for me to say for the point that I'm speaking here today. Um, it's, my home was not a happy place for my wife and children. It probably wasn't even a safe place. I would throw temper tantrums like a 15-year-old child not getting in my way. I'd punch holes in the walls, slam doors, break things. I'd, I'd scream at my wife and children like I was a Marine Corps drill instructor. Like, it was not a good, a good situation. And, uh, and that anger and intensity, 
in my mind, I justified it because I'm like, I have to be this way. I have to be this way because that's how I have to, I have to go back and, and be, you know, mean. And uh, so I justify my behavior and I wouldn't, wouldn't back down uh, and, and change. And uh, I remember one time coming home from, coming home and I was to be home from my little girl's birthday party. And uh, my little girl's big on her birthdays. In fact, I didn't know until I was a dad that they have such thing as half birthdays. Uh, that's how she, so for her to like have her, her birthday party and move it for me and, and have this available for me is always a big deal. And she's very opinionated and she's 22 now, so she's even more opinionated, but she always has been. And she didn't like the icing on her cake, something so simple. And I flipped out, grabbed a handful of my little girl's birthday cake and picked it up and threw it against the wall and destroyed my little girl's birthday. And I remember thinking in that moment, like, who does something like this? Like, what kind of dad behaves that way that destroys their little girl's birthday? And that, honestly, that's just one example of many, many behaviors like that. My wife was just talking recently on an interview that we were doing about me. Just we were at a stop stoplight, and she said something to me, and my kids are in the back seat, and I just started mule kicking our dashboard, kicked our whole dashboard into our car, and just like flipping out and just being totally out of control. And in those moments, I'd recognize I was out of control, but like if I would stop, it would be like an admission of guilt. So when that ball started rolling, I wouldn't, I wouldn't back down. And, uh, you know, I was, I was completely out of control. And my response to that behavior was instead of changing and fixing that behavior, my response was, I could deal with it later. I will just isolate myself from my family right now and stay as busy as I can. I'll deploy more. I'll be busy. And, and when I'm not home, when I'm home from deployment, be as busy training more, just isolate myself from them instead of fixing the situation. And uh, so I just de- put it off, delayed it, just like I did with my faith. I could do that later. And uh, the, my, my situation didn't get better. It only got worse. In fact, I started having these physiological symptoms. Uh, many of you probably know as PTSD. I've heard of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, what would happen with me at first was my arms would go numb. My face would go numb. Sometimes I feel like my throat was swelling shut and I couldn't breathe. There were times I feel like I had like a thousand pound weight on my chest and feel like my, my, maybe I was having a heart attack. I started researching what it was and, on the internet and learned that these are signs of panic attacks uh, coming on. And I was really just fighting, trying to fight them off. And I couldn't really tell anybody I worked with what I was dealing with because uh, if I did, if I told my, this little, my teammates of these small little special operations group what I was dealing with, they would, those guys would think I was weak and I'd be pushed out of my, my job. And, uh, and if I went to mental health, then um, I would lose my, my security clearance that I needed for my job and I wouldn't be able to do my job anymore. And the military's gotten much better, but this is, you know, this is 2006 when this was first started happening. If I would have said something back then, I, I know for a fact I would have been pushed out of my job. And so I kept it to myself. I pushed it down and tried to just figure it would get better. I could handle it. I could, I could deal with it and just kept it to myself. And the only person that really knew about it was my wife, Kathy. And uh, it didn't get better. It got much worse. Um, those, those panic attacks started to come on uh, out of nowhere, overwhelming. Uh, I would have moments to where I'd lose gaps of time, like hours, and then sometimes days where I'd feel like I woke up out of a, out of a fog. And then uh, I started having these symptoms during some really intense moments in Afghanistan called disassociation. It's where your mind kind of sees everything almost in a bird's eye view of yourself and everything's a little bit delayed. So it's almost like you're out of body, out of body kind of experience. And then uh, my, towards the end of my deployments, we had this moment where 12 of our teammates were captured. All of them were killed, ten, two Americans, 10 Afghans. And you may not think it was such a big deal that the Afghans were killed, but to me it was. Like these guys, these Afghans were my brothers. Like I lived in their homes for three years. I ate dinner with their families. I played soccer with their kids. 
Um, I love these guys, and, and I would have died for them, and they would have died for me. In fact, I believe they did die for me. And, uh, and if I was hanging on by a thread in that moment, that thread was broken, and the wheels really began to fly off. I did one more operation after that, and I remember uh, coming back from that operation. I was only with local nationals, with Afghans. I remember coming back from that and realizing that I was, it was almost like waking up out of a dream. And there was parts I couldn't even remember. And I, and I thought, well, I'm not only putting myself in danger now by not saying anything, I'm putting other people in danger as well. And that was enough for me to finally speak up and say something. And when I did, I was, just like I suspected, I was brought home. I was put before a clinical psychologist. I remember Kathy and I sat before a psychologist. And uh, I was diagnosed with severe chronic PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I could sit up here and talk to you guys for all day about PTSD and what it is and what it's not. I do not believe the word disordered is an appropriate word. Our body has a very natural response, a God-given response to when we do or see things that were never meant or created to do or see. And, uh, and that's not a disorder at all. A body's doing exactly what it was meant to do. However, the symptoms of PTSD are very, very real. Um, the level of panic that I was in and the stress that I was in and many warriors coming home or in, is uh, it's indescribable if you ever experienced it before. The word panic attack gets thrown around a lot. Sometimes my daughter will say, I was in traffic the other day and I had a panic attack. That's not what I'm talking about, and not minimizing that. But when I say panic attack, I mean like you're convinced with 100% certainty you're going to die. Like no, the best doctor in the world could sit in front of you and tell you you're okay, and you would never, be, you would never believe otherwise that you're going to die. You feel like your body's shutting down. Imagine being in a swimming pool and being chained to the bottom of a pool and you're drowning and how desperate would you be? You could see the surface. Like how desperate would you be to get one breath of air? The level, imagine that level of panic, but you never drown. You never die. You're in that state of panic 24-7. It's like being on a roof of a burning building. You don't want to die. You don't want to kill yourself or anything like that. You, you just want to escape and it feels like there's, there's no escape. Um, on top of that, I felt extremely ashamed because I, I had been given this this privilege and opportunity to do what I believe to be the most important job in the world. Like I had made it in the Marine Corps without even a high school diploma, given a second chance. I made it in the recon against all odds. I made it to force recon. I made it to JSOC. And now I'm giving this a very important mission. I thought that one of the most important missions I could ever be given. I was so, I felt so privileged. It was like if you played football your whole life and made it to the NFL in the Super Bowl, which would never happen with me because I'm five foot three, but you get the point, right? I, made, I worked my whole life to get to this point in the middle of the Super Bowl. I failed. And I, and I was like so ashamed to my, I was ashamed of myself, my family, my teammates, our country. I, I, I was really just embarrassed with myself. And uh, so I'm dealing with panic, anxiety, depression, shame, all these things at one time. And my wife and my counselor were trying to find something for me to do to like, snap me out of it because the medicines made me feel worse. I thought the me- I was convinced the medicines were going to kill me. So I didn't want to take the medicine. And so they talked me into getting on those wrestling mats and doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu again. And uh, not that it was something new. In fact, I did it my whole life. I'd say I did it since I was little, but I'm, I'm still little. I did it since I was five years old, right? I started when I was five. I've been training my whole life. And, and I'd always, I was already a professional MMA fighter on the side. I was undefeated. So I was pretty good at it. So they talked me to getting those mats. And when I got on those mats and started training for the first time, I felt like I found a cure. Because I don't know if anybody's ever wrestled or did martial arts before. You can't think about Afghanistan and think about what you're doing at the same time. If you're not paying attention, your buddy's going to choke you or beat you up. You have to be focused. And so it's like one of those moments where you can unplug from all your anxiety and find a place to tune in. And I thought it was really healthy for me. And it, and it, and it is. 
You know, but you can have a medicine for being sick, and you can abuse that medicine. And uh, that's what I did with this. It took something that was good for me, and I totally abused it. I didn't get well. Uh, you know, I still love jiu-jitsu today. I still train. I'm a third-degree black belt in, in Carlson Gracie in jiu-jitsu. And, and when I have ministry, is tough. You could ask Pastor Aaron. You know, ministry is, like, really tough and stressful. And when I have a bad day, bad day at the office, I go to the gym, and I find, like, some 20-year-old stud, and I choke him out. And uh, <laughs> get back to, you know, by the way, like, it's the best time to share the gospel with someone is when you're choking them out and think they're about to die. <laughs> they're about to meet their maker. No, but uh, I love jiu-jitsu. But I took this thing that was good for me, and instead of getting well, I just spent every, like some people would climb in a bottle of alcohol or take pills. That's what I did with jiu-jitsu. And I just focused on that 24-7. And I found a lot of success. I opened a prof- uh, school. I ended up with almost 1,000 students in my school, so we were making a lot of money. Uh, we, I started fighting professionally again. I ended up being 18-2 and two as a professional fighter. I was ranked number six in the world as a fly rate, number one in the U.S. I won a world, world title belt. If you watch MMA, I was, you know, fought on Showtime and pay-per-view and all the big shows you see, MTV. Uh, I won the legacy uh, title, uh, lightweight title, uh, flyweight, bantamweight title, and I was, I was ranked number six as a flyweight. But... Uh, all this success was really, if you looked at it on the surface, it looked, like, it looked like I had it all together. But it was really just a fake facade of success. Because underneath all that was still someone dealing with panic attacks at night. I don't even know how I was functioning as an athlete because I would, uh, sleep was not a g- uh, good thing for me. Um, my marriage was falling apart. I was still a tyrant, tyrant to my wife and children. In fact, uh, our, our marriage was so, so broken that many nights I'd sleep in the gym or at a friend's house or in one of my kids' bed. Uh, probably the loneliest place Kathy and I ever say we've ever been is not me being deployed on some mountainside in Afghanistan, but in our own, ba- in our own bed with our backs turned toward each other in a dead marriage. And our marriage was essentially in, our, in our, both our minds over. And it didn't take long for me to um, have the attention that you get from you know, a, a guy in sports with girls around and to walk out of our marriage and affairs and uh, bad relationships with other women. And uh, I remember when my wife found out the response for us was to sit down and tell our, tell our family we were getting divorced. I remember, t- I remember us sitting down telling our kids, hey, it's going to be better, right? You're not going to have to hear the fighting anymore. You're going to get two Christmases. All the, all the things that parents that are divorcing tell, the, tell kids, it's going to be better. It wasn't going to be better. Our, our kids were, were devastated. It was just part of that down, downward spiral that we were, in, we were caught up in. And I remember we, we sold our home. We filed for divorce. My wife and I signed two separate leases for 12, 12, 12 months each in apartments. And we both had two very different reactions. Uh, Kathy joined the church. Uh, we were already a part of a church, but she joined another church, a smaller church to be closer to community. Uh, I don't think she was trying to fight for our marriage, but she just wanted to be around the right people. And, um, and people would tell me that Kathy would go to church, not just on Sundays, but different days of the week. And I always stand on a Stand up on a, on a stage pulpit, and I think of this like left wall over here because people say she would go stand against that wall and she'd pray for me. They said sometimes she'd collapse crying, praying for me. And of course, you know, I'd want to know what she was she praying. And uh, she prayed, God, let me see Chad the way you see Chad. Let me love Chad the way you love Chad. Let me forgive Chad the way you forgave Chad. That's what she would pray for me when we were separated. And meanwhile, I, went, I was in this bachelor pad. Like, I don't have to deal with this woman anymore. She never understood me anyway. I signed this big fight on Showtime with Strike Force. If you guys are MMA fans, Strike Force at the time was the second biggest show in the world, and the UFC owned it. And uh, it was a big, big fight. 
And I remember uh, just focused on training into this fight. And you get, when you got a big fight like that, there's a lot of tension, people around and media and stuff like that. And I was just really consumed in that for about three months of our separation. And I remember that fight took place, I fought in the Toyota Center in Houston, Texas. And, uh, and man, of, of my 18 wins, I have 17 submissions in one decision, which means one of them went to the, the whole length of the fight. And, uh, and this, was, this fight was like my Rocky Balboa, Balboa fight, like back and forth. If anybody's a fight fan, like I knocked Humberto de Leon down every round, and he knocked me down every round. It was war back and forth. I remember fighting so hard to win that fight, and when it was over, uh, I had never been to decision before. And I remember the announcer announces one judge for Humberto de Leon, one judge for me. It's going to be a split decision. And I'm like, I can't even remember what happened because I've been punched in the head so many times. And, uh, and uh, the, I'm thinking I'm going to lose this fight. And finally, the announcer announces the third judge for me. I win by split decision. My hand gets raised. Everybody in the, in the 10,000 people in there are cheering. And this weight, this weight comes off of me from this fight. And while everybody's cheering, it was almost like a kind of time standstill kind of moment. I remember thinking, like, all these people here, and not one of them is, is Kathy. And Kathy's, you know, she's always been my cheerleader. She's been in all those fights. It was one she wasn't at. And, uh, and I remember thinking in that moment, like, how I you know, fought so hard to win this fight. But meanwhile, my wife and my children are devastated because I'm not fighting for them. And, uh, and I probably walked out of that ring that night with my head down, uh, even though I won, and I went home, and I'm laying in bed that night, and my mind starts spinning. You know, after a big fight, you can't just go to sleep. My mind's spinning, and I'm thinking of all these things, and I'm thinking how I blamed everyone for everything. My father for my childhood, people in the military. If you've been in the military for more than a day, you're going to blame people in the military for something. We all complain about us. People in the military, but how I blame my wife for never understanding, right? She never understood me. I'm blaming everyone, and everyone's an idiot. And it's true, there's a lot of idiots out there, to be honest. <laughs> but in my situation, like, I was a common denominator. I'm like, I'm the problem. And maybe, you know, this thought came over me that maybe my family would be sad without me, but they would be better off without me. Think about, think about that, you know, for a second. This thought of maybe my family would be sad without me, but they'd be better off. And if you guys don't know, that same hopeless thought finds a, a home in the hearts of 20-plus veterans every single day, every day, 20-plus veterans take their lives because they come to that same conclusion, I believe. Maybe my family, maybe my friends, maybe my loved ones would be sad without me, but the world would be better off. And I, and I made a decision to take my life. And uh, I wasn't going to give little signs or reach out for help because I didn't want anyone to intervene. I wanted to keep it to myself, and, I've, and I had a little plan, and I would sit in my closet. Uh, I had a Glock 22 pistol, which is a 40-caliber pistol, and I'd put my family pictures around me on the floor, and I'd try to build up the courage to put that pistol to my head and pull that trigger. And um, every time, I, I, bl- I really believe that God gave me this thought or intervention, because every time I'd put that gun to my head, obviously I know what a gun could do. I've been, I have a lot of experience with firearms and seen what guns could do, so I know what happens when that trigger breaks. And I'd even try to get the position right. That would be fast. But every time I put that gun, gun to my head, I'd have this overwhelming vision in my, that would come over me of who was going to find me. I would see it play out. And, uh, you know, somebody's, somebody's going to find you because someone's going to hear it or someone's gonna, you're going to be missing. Someone's going to find you. I'm in an apartment. And so the only other person besides me that had a key to my apartment was my son, Hunter. And the thought of my son being part of opening a door, having him part of finding me, that was enough to make me, like, pump the brakes and not do it in that moment. But the next day, I was back up trying to build the courage to do it again. I was just so determined, and, and at, at that time, I was so down. 
And uh, there was one morning that my wife and I had a phone call. I don't really remember it, but she does. Uh, that we had this argument on the phone and she could tell in my voice that I was distressed. And when she came to my apartment, I was in that closet with that pistol and I heard a knock on the door. I wasn't going to answer it. Uh, but then I heard her voice. And when I heard Kathy's voice, I did something that probably really indication where, where my mind was. I took that pistol and I hid it under her blanket. It was my apartment. She would have never came in my closet. Like, why would I do that? She, I hid that pistol under a blanket because I was ashamed of what I was doing. And I went to the door and we I opened a door and I was really irritated with her just being there. And we got in this big argument. And during this argument, she asked me a question that radically changed my life. She asked me how I could do everything I did in the Marine Corps because she came around, we were 17 and 18 years old when we met. So she's seen me become a recon Marine. She's seen me go through all this training and the hard things I did, training for deployments and going to Afghanistan and, and then training for these MMA fights. Like I'd train, do these three-month camps. I had so much discipline. Like with my diet, I'd lose 30 pounds. I'm not a big guy. Like losing 30 pounds, bones in my face, look like a Holocaust victim. Like the amount of discipline it takes to do that kind of training. Uh, and she's like, how could you do all of that? And when it comes to your family, you'll quit. And I don't know about the rest of you men in here, but to me, there's no more soul-cutting word than to be called a quitter. And uh, she was absolutely right. I've been successful at professional things in my life. When it came to the most important things, being a husband, being a father, being that young 17-year-old kid that stood on his yellow footprints in the Marine Corps boot camp and made an oath to myself, to the, my country, to the Marine Corps that I was going to do something important with my life, really embraced that second chance at life. I had quit on all those things, including my will to live. Now, I'm a pretty radical decision maker. That's just my personality. I'm either all in or all out. And in that moment, I made a radical decision and I was going to, I'm like, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to take that same work ethic, discipline that she's talking about and apply it into my life. I'm going to fix this situation. It had nothing to do with faith at the time. I was just like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull this back together. And even told her, like, you don't have to do anything. I'm going to do all the work. You're going to see. But the one thing I knew, and I believe it was a second intuition that God gave me in this process, the one thing I knew was that I couldn't do it alone, and I couldn't do it to the people I'd surrounded myself by. And that's no fault to anybody in my past. But the people I had surrounded myself by were everybody that told me what I needed to hear, and no one had told me what I what I. Everyone had told me what I wanted to hear. No one had told me what I needed to hear, right? I had to push accountability in my life. I had no accountability in my life. And there's no more dangerous place for men to be in this world, more dangerous than any place in the battlefield in Afghanistan, but for, to be without accountability in this world. I pushed all the accountability out of my life. And I needed somebody to step into my life and hold me accountable. So I asked my wife, is there someone at this church you're going to that can help hold me accountable to this decision? And she introduced me to a man named Steve Toth. He was an elder on call at the church that day. And he, he showed up, met me at a Starbucks coffee shop. He had never served in the military. He was, wasn't an MMA fighter or anything like that. He was a small business owner in town. Uh, but he had the perfect gift to help me. He had ADD, like really bad. And, you might think it's, and the reason why is because I was so manipulative, I would have said all the right things, but this guy has no patience at all. Like literally when you go eat lunch with him, he runs from the, the door of the restaurant to his car because walking is a waste of time. So he has like no patience. He's like really a nervous guy. And, uh, and that was such a gift because I was ready to manipulate him and tell him, tell him all the right things, and he just didn't have the patience to hear it. And I remember, like, I wrote a, a five-paragraph order for the military guys, like an operational order of how I was going to fix my life, and it was really good. I was super proud of it. I was excited to show it to him so he could show it to Kathy. I'm trying to win her back. And uh, she could give it to him, and he puts his hand on it without even looking at it, and he slides it back over to me with his impatient self and tells me that I'm going to fail. And I remember thinking, like, how rude is this guy? Like, he didn't even look at it. 
And he tapped on that paper, and I'll never forget his words. As he tapped on it, he said, if this plan does have anything to do with your relationship with God, I'm not going to waste your time, and I'm not going to let you waste mine. No. At that point in my life, I had tried everything. I had been through, I had been on the medication. I had been through counseling programs and life recovery programs. I had professional success in, in MMA and financially. I had, a, had been, basically tried everything I could try, and none of those things worked. Some of those things were good, some of those things were bad, but none of those things changed my situation. And we have a saying at Mighty Oaks Foundation that comes from this. If what you're doing isn't working, then why not try something different? Everything I was trying wasn't working. It was time for me to try something different. I was at the end of my rope. And so I trusted this man, Steve. I surrendered my life to Christ. And, uh, and beyond that decision, Steve mentored me for an entire year in biblical manhood. And uh, what I discovered was that all these bad things that happened to me in my life, and I'd shared some of them, like losing buddies in combat. So, I mean, I could go on and on. All these, ba- all these bad things that happened to me in my life, as bad as some of those things were, those things did not lead me to be in that closet with my pistol in my hand. What led me there were the choices that I made in response to those things. And I never lost control of the ability to choose. And now, even though I couldn't change the incidents in my past, I couldn't go back in time and erase those moments, I could respond to them differently. Because he was teaching me a biblical model of how to respond to those things. And when I started being very intentional about making decisions and responding to the hardships of my life in a different way, in a biblical way, I began to find restoration in my marriage, in my family, in my own brokenness. I began to find hope for the first time in a very long time. And ultimately, I found what I probably sought my whole life and what most of you probably have sought your whole life. I found purpose. We were created to have purpose. Without purpose, we kind of wither up and die. If you want to know why 20-something veterans take their life every day, it's not because of what we've seen or did. It's because we had an important purpose one day, and then one day we woke up and we felt like there was no more purpose moving forward. But there is. God has given us a purpose. If we're still breathing, we have breath in our lungs, we have purpose. And uh, we have to find it. Mark Twain says it like this. It's one of my favorite quotes. The two most important days in a person's life are the day that they're born and the day that they find out why. When Steve Toth introduced me a life I believe I was created to live, I, f- I found out the why. And it was to share what I had discovered with others. You see, I thought I was the only one that was dealing with what I was dealing with. I thought I was the only one that could uh, be struggling the way I, I was. And when I finally stepped off that X and into that purpose, I realized that there was others struggling. There was 22, in fact, at the time, 22 veterans a day struggling so much that it took their life. There was 80% of our, my brothers and sisters divorcing after, their families after combat. 30 to 40% of people were coming home and being diagnosed with PTSD, dealing with those same panic and anxiety issues that I was dealing with. Other people were struggling. And I felt like I had been dying of cancer and Steve Toth had given me the cure to cancer. Like, you can't keep something like that to yourself. You have to share it. You're obligated to share it. And so I believe God put a deep burden on my heart to share what I discovered with others. And, uh, and that birth. Uh, or resulted in the founding of Mighty Oaks Foundation. When Kathy and I decided to start Mighty Oaks Foundation, uh, we were only about a year after out, out of our own battle. We were still bleeding. And so we p- probably, to anyone outside, had absolutely no business starting a ministry. We didn't know how. We didn't have any idea uh, what we were doing. But we just felt the need to be obedient to God putting this burden on our heart. And so we did. And I'm so thankful that God brought all the right people around to support us because we weren't ready. 
but so many people came around to support us and, and equip us to do it. A grateful nation of Americans came behind support to support what we do. And, uh, and, and it's been 10 years now. And, uh, and it's been a uh, most amazing mission and purpose that I've ever had in my life. Uh, we've had 4,000 graduates go to our programs. We have, uh, we run 30 camps a year now. So now, even though we did 4,000 in the last 10 years, we're doing 1,000 per year. We have five ranches around the country that we pay for their flights. We pay for everything. They don't pay for anything. They come from active duty military on all four branches, send them, sends them on orders uh, to us. Uh, I say all four branches. We have a space force now. We haven't got a space force guy yet. <laughs> but uh, we have a... Uh, we have those ranches that we do 30 times a year and the week-long camps. We have aftercare programs. And then I go to bases around the world and speak to active duty troops on resiliency, spiritual resiliency. I've been able to speak to over 150,000 active duty troops at bases around the world, including Marine Corps boot camp, where for the past five years, the Marine Corps lets me go every quarter and speak to all the Marine Corps recruits and give them a book called Path to Resiliency. Uh, we've written several books uh, I'll, I'll share one of them here with you in a second, but we've been able to give away over 100,000 copies of my books to the troops to help them be more spiritually resilient and, and be on the front end and understand what those pillars of resiliency are, that you could be a man of God and still be a warrior. In fact, being a, even a more resilient, more combat-ready and more resilient warrior by being a man of God early on and understand that. And they don't have to decide later on when they're sitting in a closet with a pistol in their hand. Uh, so it's such a privilege to be able to do that. And then one of the other things I get to do that I'm very privileged to do, and I mentioned a little bit in my introduction, is advocacy work. The, the uh, government policy is so upside down when it comes to caring for veterans, and it's been so messed up for so long that uh, we've needed uh, advocacy uh, from the veteran community. And so I've been able to spearhead some advocacy in the veteran community and bring faith-based solutions back into the VA and DOD. Um, during the past four years, we've gotten lots of policy through, um, President Trump had uh, worked on getting an executive order in place to bring faith-based solutions back to the VA and DOD, and uh, we, we were a big part of that. And so advocacy has been a big piece of what I do in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, I've testified before Congress several times and uh, really got that. So if, you're, um, if you believe in that, definitely go learn more about that on our website. Uh, but I want to close with this. God's promise of hope and restoration is not reserved just for combat veterans. I know we're talking a lot about military today, but the promise I talked about, the hope I talked about, the restoration I talked about, it's not just for combat veterans. It's for, it's for you. It's for me. It's for all of us. There's a million ways in this world that you can be hurt, that you can find yourself off track, but I'm convinced there's only one way to get well, and there's only one way to find purpose in your life, and that's through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Life, li- life is hard. Uh, if we learned anything the last year with all the craziness and COVID and everything like that, um, with a crazy election, all the stuff that's going on, life is hard. And we're all going to find ourselves on the X from time to time. But when we do, you have to know that God has a plan and promise for your life. Whatever the X may be on for you. It could be, it could be anger, fear, loneliness, selfishness, laziness, addiction depression, a lack of purpose, whatever that X is for you, whatever it is, know God's promise for you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and to give you a future. A promise that that could give us each direction when we find ourselves on those X's in life. And uh, if if you're in the only way, I think, to really step forward into that plan is to begin it with a relationship with him. And if you don't, if you're not there in your life right now, uh, I don't know where else to begin besides tell you there. 
You have to begin with a relationship with you. You have to, you have, to have a relationship with the creator to understand who you're created to be and step into the purpose you were created for. And um, as you step on the X's, off the X's in your life, I pray that that'll be the, the path for each of you. I thank you so much for your, Terry, for the invitation to be here. Pastor, Pastor Aaron, for the opportunity to be here. Thank you guys so much. God bless you. Happy birthday. Kathy, love you. <laughs> and uh, before I walk off, I want to I pray with you. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be in this church today. Thank you uh, for communities like this that we gather together and uh, put a day out, put a Sunday out to honor our warriors, to honor the sacrifice they made, to recognize that we would not be able to be in a place of worship like this if it wouldn't be for our brave men and women who put their lives at risk to go and fight for us to be able to maintain these freedoms. They've done it since 1775 and they're still doing it today as we have warriors deployed today. Lord, I pray for each person here uh, that they can let go of their past, step off that X, and move forward in in the life and future you have for them. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, guys, I have a table out there. I have flyers. Uh, If you want to support Mighty Oaks, this is how you can support it. It costs us $2,500 to get a warrior through our program. Um, And you guys are already doing that through this community. But most importantly... Grab a flyer for one reason, if not any other, is you never know when you can run across a veteran struggling. God will use you to intersect with their lives. You give them this, and it's a, it's a solution to literally save their life, restore their family, change their eternity forever. And if you're a veteran that's struggling, this is for you. We, we pay for you to go there. We pay for everything. No questions asked. Grab one of these applications and apply online. This is a copy of my book, An Unfair Advantage. Uh, it's endorsed by the president. It'll be made in a motion picture film here soon. A lot of my stories from Afghanistan and uh, also has a 10-week Bible study in the back uh, as an online resource. So grab a copy in the back. Thank you guys so much. God bless you. Thank you.